You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. Also back in the booth is Professor Judith Main. Hi, everyone. We continue our look at French films with a little something more recent than the other films we've been covering this month. It's 1994's I Can't Sleep, directed and co-written by Claire Denis. It's basically three stories in one, which occasionally intersect. In the first, it's the story of Daiga, who has driven from Lithuania to Paris in search of something, perhaps an acting career. In the second, it's a frustrated violinist, Theo, and his wife and son. He wants to move them to Martinique. And in the third, it's Camille, Theo's brother, a gay man who, along with two creepy white dudes, murder and rob old women. If I haven't spoiled the movie enough already, we may spoil it even more as we go along. So you have been warned. So Judith, when was the first time you saw I Can't Sleep? And what did you think? I can't remember when I first saw it, but I will tell you that when I did, I had been thinking about what my next project was going to be. This was a you know a good while ago. I was thinking about Claire Denis, and I liked her first two films a lot, but I still wasn't sure. You know, like did I have something I wanted to say about her work? Or and then I saw this, and this is I swear this is one of the films that changed my life. I saw this film and I fell totally in love with it. Part of it was here's somebody who 
Claire Denis has a really special and intimate approach to the actors that she works with. And there's some regulars in this film. Alex Descas, who plays Theo, the brother with the child, um, and married to Beatrice Dahl. He's been in numerous Claire Denis films. Even Richard Corset, who plays Camille, the serial killer, even he had a small part in Beau Travail. If you look closely, when the members of the French Foreign Legion are on a boat early on in the film, Richard Corset is one of the legionnaires. And Daiga, the, the woman who plays Daga, Daiga, I don't think she ever worked with before, but there's just such a, you get this sense of such intimate communication between the person behind the camera and the person that she's filming. And it's great to see Claire Denis' regulars in this film, but it's also great to see people who are appearing for the first time in one of her films and who I don't think you see again in in very many, like the woman who plays Daiga. I don't think she's appeared in any other ones. And there's also some small touches. Um, if you remember, you have to really look closely to catch this one, but the woman who stars in um, No Fear, No Die, um, who was a kind of object of desire for several different men in the film. She has a small part in this. She's the one who asks Camilla after the night spent at that club where he performs. She's the one who asks him for some for some photographs. So it's nice to see you know, this cast of characters from other Claire Denis works pop up in this film. What really drew me to this is how the film manages to be hypnotic and to draw you into the nature of an urban space where people are anonymous and yet there are all these moments, usually small moments of connection in the film where people, you don't know anybody. Daiga certainly knows no one except her great aunt and the Lynn Renault character who runs the hotel that she lives in. But you see her kind of moving throughout the film with these different in- encounters. And there's something almost magical about the way that people, you know, they're apart, but they kind of slide up against each other, you know, bump into each other. And the stories of the film initially seem to be very disconnected. But, of course, they're very much woven together as the film proceeds. And one of the many things I loved about the film, you know, you begin the film with the two police officers in the helicopter, we have no idea what they're laughing at. That We have no idea what the joke is. They're probably surveilling something or other, but we don't know why, and they aren't paying much attention to what's going on in the ground. We do see there's a, a pinup of a, of a woman displayed in the front of the, on the dashboard of the helicopter, which wouldn't be that significant, except that when we come down to Earth and start following Daiga, in her car as she moves into Paris, there are two guys who drive by and, you know, are kind of hassling her from their, from their car. And so it kind of picks up that repetition. And then later two police officers also give her a hard time and she is parked illegally, but they give her a hard time too. So there's this kind of motif that's introduced, not as some kind of grand symbolic thing. It's just, Two men watching a woman makes her uncomfortable, and that's kind of woven into the rest of the film. And the way that the film traces this voyage into Paris, I think, is really beautifully done. We go high to low, and then the only recognizable 
thing we ever see in the city of Paris is Sacré-Cœur, the church in the 18th arrondissement, that we see several times. It's not integrated into the story in any way except to tell us that we're in the northern arrondissement of Paris. And I think it's an incredibly engaging, enchanting way of portraying what life is like for people who are outsiders in an urban environment. I've been a real admirer of Claire Denis ever since, and this film is the one that convinced me I wanted to write about her. I think it's just a spectacular film. How about you, Colin? Were you familiar with this one before we started to do the episode? I first heard about this, I think it was like 19 years ago when I started film school at NYU, and there was an option to pick either this or there were a few other movies, and the one I wound up picking was uh, Love Affair, the case of the missing switchboard operator. And so I've been wanting to see this ever since. So I took this opportunity to watch it. And I had only seen Trouble Every Day before this, and I'd been wanting to see more of Denis's work. And this just entranced me. Um, I've been watching her movies nonstop this week. I saw this many times. And I was thinking about what was it that struck me so much about this particular movie. And just personally speaking, what really drew me in was how much it forced me to focus. I've been having this trouble lately where I you know, put movies on and I can just sort of like nod off. I can get on my phone. I can think about something else. But with this movie, so much of what we see on screen is not reinforced by the soundtrack, by the dialogue. And I felt like I just love the fact that I have to pay attention to everything that's happening. Like in some ways... Some scenes are really quiet. Sometimes there's dialogue. But if you're not watching every detail, you're going to miss something. And there's so much that actually happens, even though there's not a lot of plot, but just the relationships of the characters, their lives. I just love the way that Denis just throws you into their world and you have to pick up. She's not going to explain it to you. And to me, that just made me fall in love with the way she tells stories. And it's so visual. If it hasn't been obvious already, I adore this movie and um, will continue to be watching more of her stuff. Now, there is just something hypnotic about the way that, I know this sounds cornball to say, but she almost casts a spell on the spectator. If you're really paying attention, I mean, you have to be willing to sit there and watch these tracking shots and just see where these things lead. You made the point already earlier, Judith, and you also talk about it in your in your book, but just how significant the act of watching or being watched is to her movies. And you're so aware of this act of the camera, of the characters and yourself. It's, it's extraordinary. It's interesting to observe this in the character of Daiga, because as she enters into the city of Paris, she's obviously a stranger. She has to look at you know, a really touristy map to find out which way to go to get to her um, great aunt's apartment. As she continues, the film is supposedly inspired partially by this French board game called The Goose Game. In it, the city of Paris is a spiral. And so you keep going in spirally, internally. And if you look at a map of the city of Paris, it is kind of like a spiral, although there's nothing spiral-like about the way the film depicts Paris, because it's more like she arrives in the 18th arrondissement, 
Yomomalva, she arrives, and then it's kind of this plunge into the depth of the city and the way that once you are there, these chance encounters take you to all the different places and encourage you, I think, to see the city in a different way. It's not a city of monuments, except for the obvious Sacré-Cœur that appears fairly frequently, not too. At first, I thought it was going to be very linear as far as time goes, because there seems to be a couple times where we're with these characters in the morning, evening, night, and then the next morning, but not necessarily so, because I think Camille's story is definitely taking longer. There are two times where he murders people, and those seem to be a little bit farther apart, though when you look at the actual person that his character is based on, there were a lot of murders over a very short period of time, though not two murders a night kind of thing. Who knows? I'm I'm not sure. But I also like that these are all immigrants, that we've got all three of our main characters are coming to us from someplace else. We've got Daiga coming from Lithuania, and we have the other two men, the brothers coming from Africa. Mike is mixing up the island of Martinique with the country of Mozambique just how they are put on the outs and treated by the rest of this, the citizenry. And you talked about being looked at and, you know, Daiga definitely, uh, when she's in that cafe, one of the first places she goes to, all of those men are staring at her and so many places that she goes, you talked about how the car, and I do like that shot, especially when the dog is also looking at her from the car. She's that object to be looked at. But then also Camille is that object to be looked at, especially when he does his show and all of the eyes are looking at him during that. I guess it's kind of a drag show. He's a little bit in drag, not like, at least I am a showgirl, bitch. Go back to Party City where you belong. That's there. And it's also there in his regular just day to day when he's uh, in his brother's bathroom and he takes off his pants. He's got the fishnet like pantyhose on. Uh, and I'm like, oh, OK, well, that's interesting. And I, at first I wasn't sure. You know, I like Colin, how you talk about how you just get plunged into this world. I'm not sure what the relationship is between these characters. At first, I thought Theo and Camille were lovers. I didn't realize that they were brothers. And it takes a long time for that to come out. It also takes a long time for names to even get mentioned. I think it was about halfway through the film before I even knew Theo's name. And then trying to fi figure out that relationship between him and the Beatrice Dahl character and his son. I'm just like, is this his son? Is this Camille's son? It's very, very interesting. I know, it looks like it could be a girl at first. Yeah, everything is very ambiguous. One point of correction, Theo and Camille are, are, are Martiniquez, and so they're French. Mar oh, Martinique is a département of, of France. Like, if you're Martiniquez, you're French. Just like, you know, okay, it's still, you know, the islands, um, the Caribbean islands, but it's a department of France. It's not a former colony. It's a department of, okay, now a lot of times it was treated like a colony, but still... They are French, but the point is still really well taken that this is about people who are seen as aliens. And the irony of that, of course, is that they are just as French as some of the people that are scoffing at them or looking at them strangely. But you know, because they carry the markers of a different racial identity to white people, then that's how they're seen as others. You know, when we first meet Theo, one of the things I love about that scene, it's it begins where you know Camille is asleep and being woken up by the, by by the little boy, and then the camera sort of shifts 
you know, you know, it's like a lateral, uh, you know, you know, shift and almost through a wall and you see Tio on the other side of the wall. And at first I was thinking like, oh, this is like some like O'Fulls type shot where it has like physically moved through the wall. And then all of a sudden the little boy appears from behind the camera and you realize that this space is actually shared. They're not neighbors in different apartments. And just like, I don't know, it's just like a lovely, lovely little, I don't, a game isn't the right word, but um, this slow reveal of this connection, of these characters. Trick isn't the right word either, but there's something about it. You feel like a little bit of mischievousness is is going on because you really do assume separate but connected spaces. And then, oh, there's the kid. Yeah, it's same space, basically. So much of this film has to do with how thin those walls are, too. So I was right there with you, Colin. I thought for sure that this was – you went to a Fools. I went to Brian De Palma. I was just like, okay, yeah, we just moved – into this other set, but no, no, it's the exact same set. It's the exact same apartment that these two men are sharing. And now this little boy's here too. Except he doesn't live there, Camille. That's the other thing. He just shows up when he feels like it. And of course it makes it difficult at first. Are they lovers? We don't find out for a good while that they're, that the two men are brothers. Cause it feels like a long time before Beatrice Dahl ever shows up either. I feel like in the the films of Denise that I've seen, this sort of uncomfortable, uncertain intimacy between relations does reappear in other movies. Um, I watched uh, Nanette and Bonnie this morning. I mean, there's you know so many moments like when the brother has to lift the sister out of the tub and they're both naked and their bodies are touching. Later, he's like putting his ear to her stomach and. Yeah, and it's like really, really interesting physical relationships between people in her movies. The moments of physical intimacy almost seem rare, but when they arrive, they're just so intense. And there's something really precious about those moments of connection. I'll tell you my favorite in I Can't Sleep. It happens later in the film, but after she knows who Camille is, you know, she recognizes the drawings at the police station she starts following them all over the place when they're at the counter and she orders a cafe and he has a cafe and she kind of reaches over for the sugar there's that brief moment of it's like a flutter of touch between the two of them and it's like it's there and it's gone and i think that's the only she sees him i don't know that he's seen her before if he's paid attention to her in the hotel and he offers to pay for her drink after that. So, like, he got, that moment of touch obviously affected him in some sort of way, too. Yeah, I love that moment. You know, for all the moments in films where you kind of take for granted there are going to be these intense scenes of intimacy, of touching, a little moment like that really, really is effective. I, I, I love that moment in films so much. Does he recognize her? She recognizes him. She sees him pretty early on in the film when she goes to the hotel and looks up and sees him in the embrace with one of his white lovers. Then she also gets to see him even more intimately when he's not in his room. When she looks at those photographs, like she becomes the investigator character and she's gone from the one being looked at constantly to now looking at other people. And this whole power of the look is really prevalent in this film, though it isn't beating us over the head. 
And I love how that shifts in, in the film, how she really becomes the primary spectator in the film. She's the investigator who's, you know, trying to figure out, she doesn't know any more than we do. Well, she knows a little bit more because she, no, she, I guess we recognize that he's the killer at the same time, but to see her as this kind of stereotypical object of the look, gradually she becomes this active investigator of what's going on around her. Part of that too, we never see the moment where she realizes that the guy who convinced her to come to Paris to act in something or other is just a, a real creep, that he never had any intention of casting her in whatever it is. We don't see her finally having that moment until she smashes into his car. And I love that. It's like, no, no subtle dramatic moment of, oh gosh, I guess I was really taken advantage of by this guy. No, she sees him and she's going to smack his car. And it was a fabulous moment in the film, I thought. May I point out something else about that particular scene when she rams into the car? This really got to me. There are lots of old people in Paris who live alone. As the film went on, I found that when I saw older people, and especially older women, it was kind of a jolt of recognition. And when she rams into his car, there's an old woman on the sidewalk, just a bystander, you know. But I realized that in the course of the film, this dynamic of elderly women, like her aunt and like the owner of the hotel, there are these older women who are never primary characters but you just start to see them because you know that they're so vulnerable in the space of this city that's being kind of invaded by the serial killers. Well, two, actually. I love when filmmakers take you into such a keen awareness of what the dynamics of power and intimacy in a film do in terms of how you see, how we see what we see. I thought that was a really great touch. In a quote-unquote normal film, we've got that scene of Dushka, the uh, hotel owner, leading that self-defense class of all the older women. And they've got these, like, kendo sticks, and she's like, balls, forehead, balls, forehead. And I'm just like, okay, at some point, Daika's uh, aunt is going to get attacked, and then she's going to manage to find something that looks like a stick and just take this guy out. No, thank goodness we don't have that. This is me being too Hollywood cultured, but I would love that if she had had the opportunity. There was something kind of delightfully funny about that and almost giddy. And I, you know, two the two of the women that stand out, there's the one who herself is laughing and the instructor is like, you shouldn't be laughing about this. And then there's the woman who seems to have forgotten where the balls are. And she's like, you got to aim lower. They're not that high. That's a great moment. Lean Renault, are you too familiar with her by any chance? Do you know? I'm not really. I love this woman. She's passed now, but she's like a very, very famous singer in France. And in the beginning of the film, when you hear Relaxez-vous on the radio, that's Dean Martin and Lean Renault. That's her who's, who's singing that duet with, with Dean Martin. And the song is just so crazy. You know, I forget the, all the lyrics now, but. I, I love that. Relaxez-vous. And Lean Renault, I think she has a great presence in, in this film as an elderly. I mean, I guess she's, I guess she's elderly. She's probably my age when she made this film. That was supposed to be a little joke. And you both were supposed to say, oh, no, 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 you're not anywhere near her age. No, not at all. 
she just has such a, an authoritative take no prisoners approach. And yet one of the rare times we see Daiga have a moment of intimacy with another person is when the two of them are dancing to a whiter shade of pale. And what a lovely moment. moment. It's so, Oh, and then this is what's amazing to me. It would be great enough if they just had that scene together, but in the background, there's um, the hotel keeper's mother sitting there kind of, there's the two of them kind of dreamily getting into this. It's a kind of romantic moment. I wouldn't have been surprised if there was a little kiss, but then I'm a lesbian and I tend to see things <laughs> that way. <laughs> Wishful thinking, whatever. My girlfriend had the same thought about their, the two of them. She was like, is there something going on there? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, hmm, what are the, you know, what's going on out there? And she's just a great presence in this film. I think Lee Lavelle, I, I, I love her. Well, I think that dancing scene comes very close on the heels to Camille's performance. So we've got him dancing and again, all eyes on him. And then we've got her dancing and then it's, but her dance is so much more intimate because it's just the two or three women in the small space, very conscious of where it puts these scenes. And Denise really is doing a great job of taking us by the hand and leading us through this story or through this spiral, as you were saying, without forcing us to know these things. I know Colin and I were talking a little bit before we started to record as far as how you pick up more as you watch this film a few more times, because there are so many things. And you're talking, uh, Judith, about how people kind of just brush up against each other. The use of the montage is, is wonderful that you don't necessarily pick up on all those things. And still you, until you really start to dig in a little bit more and go, oh, I recognize that character and this character over here. I mean, even just those two cops that you're talking about run rampant through this film. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, I recognize them from these earlier scenes. I didn't necessarily recognize them from the later ones or even that we get a shot at the beginning of Camille and the two white guys. Cause there's the one who's his lover and there's the one who is he maybe like a fence or something. The doctor, the blonde-haired doctor. And you get a real brief shot of them at the beginning as well, and you don't really know who these guys are yet. Did you two know, before you saw the film, that it was inspired by a real serial killer case in, in Paris? I did not uh, until I you know, was reading about it, reading your book. I had read about it beforehand and I was not familiar with the case though. That I waited until I saw the movie and then dug into the case a little bit more. That had a lot to do. The film was, it caused kind of a scandal when it, when it came out because any representation of a serial killer in any way that wasn't, I wouldn't call it sympathetic. It's just a, a portrait of somebody's life who is, you know, got twisted, got, whatever the film was like it was really considered scandalous when it came out because the the killer's name the real killer was Thierry Pola and the film is pretty factual in the way that it presents although the film makes an effort not to show murders in close-up and I think it's only an hour into the film when you see the first murder but Claire Denis went an interesting route when she was attacked for this for seemingly creating a sympathetic serial killer. Um, and then other people were upset because 
it's the you, you you both could rehearse this i'm sure we see so few black gay men on screen in leading roles why does it have to be a serial killer why does one of the few black gay men we get to see on screen have to be a serial killer and then her approach was i'm not sure how successful it what this was she said that she felt she was being attacked for not being politically correct and she said one of the things that I never aspire to be is politically correct. Well, most intelligent people I know don't aspire to be politically correct either. I mean, it's not. I felt like she kind of got pushed up against a, a wall in being asked to defend the, the film. And that's really unfortunate. Although there are a few moments where I wondered, why would she decide to pick this particular subject for a film? And I really like what she said about that. She said that he's a serial killer and he's a mother's child. And she wanted to explore what that meant in the context of the conflicting images and conflicting stories you get about him, because he is very sweet when he's not killing old women. Can we talk about that, the drag performance that's not really very drag? I'm curious what you all think about that. You know, seeing it again this morning, well, that's one scene that I looked at. I can't tell you how many times when I was writing this book on Denis because it's very bizarre, I think. It's all men. It's as if these men are there to see a drag performance, but it's not, is it drag sort of? Um, not really. I mean, he, he's wearing a dress that falls down. So there's no illusion of having big breasts. There's, the makeup is really limited to his lipstick, I think. And yet, he's not a great, well, he's dubbing I and mean, lip syncing, but he does have this amazing presence. And now, is that, I mean, I think that, yes, it's a function of her finding the perfect actor to embody this guy. At the same time, there's something there about the relationship between the camera, Agnes Godav and Claire Denis, and the, and the subject that just, makes this, I find it uncomfortable to watch because I know drag a little, and this is not like any drag performance I've ever, I've ever seen in my life. And yet a performance it is. It's a performance of, of him. It's a performance of Camille being Camille. What I found so arresting about that performance was how private it seemed. Like there weren't these grand gestures you know, I, I, a lot of times I feel like the, his arms were like almost like, you know, around himself or nearby. You know, it didn't seem like the type of performance you would see like on a stage that's, you know, calling people to come watch me. Like there seemed to be something very internal and private and intimate about those movements. I think that's right. And that's that is maybe part of what makes him such a magnetic presence in that in that scene. There's something, I like the way you put that, that it's, it does seem like, you know, a private kind of interaction. It doesn't appear to be on a stage, but it sort of is. It's in this space where people are lined up kind of around him. It's a strange space. I kept thinking of, um, the, the cockfights in No Fear, No Die, cause, cause there's even a moment in, um, I Can't Sleep where, it cuts to the people watching Camille and there's like a, almost like a fence in front of them. And then the way people are like lined up on the wall, they're not like spectators sitting like in a seat watching something. It's, it is, it's like almost lining up. 
Yeah, it's like they're involved and yet detached at the same time, which is sort of what Claire Denis films always do. Um, you know, draw you in, but make sure that there's some distance maintained. It's a very interesting scene, I think. I like it a lot, but it's always troubled me. Watching it again today, this morning, it was troubling again. What is interesting that she was defending herself about the use of a gay black character being a serial killer because, I mean, this is 1994 when this is coming out. We've already had Silence of the Lambs in 1990. We've had Basic Instinct in 92. I mean, this is just yet another thing for Glad to protest. It's like, yeah, what are you doing? But to the same point, it's true to life. It's not like uh, Terry Ponon was, uh, you know, a straight white guy. It this is where he was at and this is where he's coming from. And yeah, I, I found it interesting that he isn't a hundred percent sympathetic. He's not a hundred percent unsympathetic. It is just very much. He is. And that's the thing that I like about this film is all three of these characters just are, and you kind of come to it with your own moral judgment. It's very, it's to what you were just talking about with the men looking at Camille it's very detached and yeah, you're not getting these, like, this is a bad person. This is a good person. Occasionally you get moments like when the little boy can't sleep and he goes up on the roof and they have that moment where um, Beatrice Dahl is cuddling with him and you get to see her relationship with Theo start to play out. It's like, this is as close to normalcy as we get. Yeah. There's never any attempt at an explanation as to why, well, I don't think you can, we can surmise why, Theo wants to go to Martinique. I don't know if he's ever been there or not. He makes that satiric comment about, oh, yeah, we can be naked all day long and fish for all of our food, etc. You know, just copy, well, really kind of mocking the mother-in-law who's so, you know, appalled that they're going to they're gonna go. He's looking for something. And that's really all we know. He's looking for something. Daiga's looking for something. Um, and so is Camille, uh, although that's one where we really don't know, I don't think, what he's looking for. He likes to be looked at. And he likes to be liked, too. And he comes into his mother's birthday party and he's got, what, six bottles of champagne. And everybody's just like, hey, you know, you're the best and come on in. And here's another dancing scene that we get, you know. He's such a hero at that point, and everybody's super super thrilled, but yet he's spending money that he's pilfered off of these old dead ladies. All of these things coexist, and there's no attempt to smooth out how bizarrely they fit together. You know, it's like, yeah, family loves him, um, and he's gorgeous, and he's got a great presence, and he seems like such a nice guy. Oh, and he's a serial killer. His brother, like cuts in on the dance with the mother that's kind of a jerk move <laughs> like you, he's the one who doesn't seem to like his brother yeah i know camille seems like you know perfectly kind of happy go that's not the right word but he seems comfortable whereas theo resents it has to get in on on the dance with his mother we see the symptoms of familial discord but we never see the cause. We never know what really, you know, is behind all that. And I think the point ultimately is that it's probably unknowable. Is it knowable to them? Probably not. And it certainly isn't knowable to us as viewers of the as viewers of the film. I think that's just something that in so many of her movies that kept me engaged is not 
nailing down these characters' motivations into like one sentence. It's just they don't even speak themselves why they do something. Um, I, I watched Friday Night the other day, and there's a movie. I'm surprised it's based on a novel because so much of it is just watching these. You know, it's a traffic jam. She picks up, uh, you know, somebody and then they drive and then they eventually get a hotel room and they don't say why they're doing the things they do. And I, I just love like, trying to inhabit their spaces like myself. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a feast for the imagination. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's such a great feature of all of her, all of her work. She's an amazing filmmaker. All three of our main characters are performers in some sense, and that we even have the scene of Theo playing his violin at the club. And that's interesting, too, because while he's doing that, and he's really good and his band's great, but while that's going on, Beatrice Dahl, his wife or girlfriend or whatever her uh, relationship is with him, is taking the kid and going. She's had enough of all of this Martinique talk. We are leaving now. I can't get along with this guy all the time, so we're out of here. I don't even know if he knows that she's gone, though, because of the events that go on in the morning. Yeah, and then she com comes back. And we have, I love the conclusion of the film, uh, although it's talk about open-ended. We have no idea where he's going. No idea where he's where he's off to. And so this kind of open-ended looking for something, but we don't know what. And they probably don't know either. I mean, that's sort of like the human condition. You know, we want something. We just don't know what it is or where we're ever going to find it. What do you all make of the moment during um, Theo's performance when his brother just walks out? The third time today, that, that really jumped out like – Something, you know, he has a reason for leaving. And like, is it jealousy of seeing, you know, him, you know, getting paid all these people around him? Is it rivalry? Is it homophobia? I mean, does he have a real problem with his brother's gay identity? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, th I hadn't thought about that, but that's really interesting. In some ways, it's not the serial killer who's the most inscrutable. I think everybody is in this film, all of the main figures that we see. But the one who I think remains the most mysterious throughout the film is Theo. There's nothing that explains what he thinks he's going to find in Martinique. And he never offers any serious explanation of why we don't even know. Like I said, I think I said this already or somebody did that. Has he ever been there? You know, he's, he's probably born in France. He could have been born in Martinique and then who knows, you know, but he's a citizen of France in any case, but, he loves his kid, that's obvious, but he's so dour and always in a bad mood. I think, I think, I said this in my book and I think it's right, that the only time you see him smile is when he's playing the violin. And it's not a very big grin. I mean, it's a, you know, small smile, a small indication of contentment. And there's kind of a semi-flirtation with the woman at the, um, at the bar, at the place where he's where he's playing but he remains the most mysterious to me of anybody else that's a much more pleasant occupation playing the violin than building the bookshelf for that oh that horrible white woman oh she's nasty yeah and i could just tell she was trying to get out of it the whole time and it's like uh no we said three thousand you're just giving me two thousand it's like oh 
Oh, wow. At that, at that price, I could have, uh, built these myself. It's like, yeah, right, lady. Yes. Yeah, so her, and that actress, um, I don't know if you've seen her much, but she's a very well-known actress in France, Catherine Flo. Um, I wish I could name some of her films. Okay. She's better known in France than she is in the U.S. I've seen some, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, that was a pretty good condensed portrait of, uh, <clears throat> white people hiring black people to do their labor for them. And at first I thought she was going to make them take apart the whole bookshelf and move it across the room because that's what she's definitely hinting at. Like, Oh, yeah. it might look better over there. And he's like, okay, son. You know, yeah. He grabs up. his stuff. Yeah. yeah. And good for him. He was awesome. You know, there is this kind of implicit thing like white people expect black people to do, to humor them, to do whatever they want. I'm going to pay you less. Oh, okay, madame, that's fine. I want the bookshelves with, oh, sure, madame, I'll do it. It'll take a couple hours, but don't worry, my time's cheap. A lot is packed into that brief, into that brief scene. Earlier, when Diaga first comes to Paris, she, you know, she goes to the cafe and gets a coffee and a croissant and goes to pay the bill. The bartender says three croissants and then she responds, one croissant. I, I, I'm curious to know what y'all think. I couldn't tell whether he was also ripping her off. Like, did she actually have three croissants or did she just not understand the language? We don't know. That's, that's what's so kind of problematic. You know, I think he was ripping her off, although he sure sounded sure of himself, but she doesn't seem like a, this is pathetic that I'm going to say this, but she doesn't seem like a three croissant kind of gal to me, but maybe he was so authoritative because the cops were there. And then also, I think he changed his tune and said, okay, one phone call, one croissant and a cafe. You know, now you, you still owe me the same amount of money, which is ridiculous. Yeah. All these fraught encounters, anybody who is in any way marginalized is, you know, always kind of on edge is always made aware of their marginalization almost all the time. Daiga and Theo, do they do they cross paths themselves? Gosh, if they do, it's very brief. I, but I don't remember a moment. Well, I should know that off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I don't think they do. It's Theo through who we get to meet some of the other neighbors. He's got uh, the one neighbor who I guess is beating his wife because she's crying. Theo lives in an apartment building as opposed to the hotel that we have. So we have both of these spaces where we have privacy without privacy, and especially privacy without privacy when you have Daiga now learning the trade when it comes to um, house cleaning. So her being able to go into any room, her being able to go in and see those photographs, being able to rifle through Camille's stuff and take all of his money. And I like that kind of rhyme that we have where when she got to uh, her aunt's place, she was pregnant, quote unquote, where she had all of the stuff stuffed under her shirt. And then we get a call back to that later on when she's going through Camille's room and taking all of his money and stuffing it into her pockets and eventually starts shoving it, shoving it down her pants and giving herself another pregnancy. So yeah, it was very interesting that um, she is able to move in and out of these spaces after a while without fear of recompense and that we have both of these very closed spaces, but 
you know, hearing things through walls, you know, Colin, you talked about how the camera moved through walls, quote unquote, but then those, the rest of the walls are not very thick and you get to understand the neighbors through how thin these walls are. What do you all make of the moment when Theo is in the neighbor's apartment and the wife comes in and shuts the door and finds him? I know. That was creepy. But she didn't she didn't seem upset or creeped out and she may regard him as kind of a, a potential savior because when Theo went to the door, I didn't completely understand that at first until I rewatched it. When Theo went to the door, it was only the guy who came to the door and he asked him and said everything was okay. Yeah. And it was kind of a standoff between the two of them. It's possible she sees him as a potential savior, but it was, these encounters are just strange. You know, there's nothing familiar about how these people who know each other, but don't really know each other, how they kind of bump up against each other. And we don't get much of a, much of a sense of anything beyond those random moments of brief encounters, you know, and um, you could say that's the nature of urban life, and it is, or Parisian life, which it certainly is. But in Daiga's case, what's great about that is that it allows her to be even more of an investigator. As she can clean rooms, she gets to you know, see what other people, uh, whether, what's hidden to, the, uh, hidden to the eyes of other people. There's a wonderful little moment when she sees um, Camille helping the other workers make the bed. And he's like helping them change the sheets and they like him so much. He's a doll. He's he's just the perfect uh resident, except for he's out killing old women. Daiga also has the advantage slash dis- disadvantage of not knowing the language. So she gets to speak in her own hidden language to the one guy who understands her. I know her aunt understands her. I think the woman that runs the hotel understands her. But there's that one guy who ends up being her translator who is in the uh, car scene when she's trying to sell her car to <laughs> to the guy. And I love that whole round robin of, you know, oh, he says that the, the car is making noise and she's just reading the guy the riot act. And then the translators, you know, not translating directly, of course, and just making excuses for why the car is so great. And this, uh, you know, idiot should buy one, <laughs> buy it. I like that she also has that ability to, be misunderstood when she wants to be. Yeah, she uses every bit of equipment at her disposal as a way to move between spaces and find out things that other people don't know. When she's speaking, you know, to the translator and then the guy trying to buy the car doesn't understand what's happening is almost it sort of mirrors when she finally gets to see the theater director who presumably told her at some point, okay, you know, come to Paris, I'll put you in a play. And obviously she shows up and he did not expect her. The His assistant is like, okay, what do I tell her? And, you know, he's, you know, the director tells her what to say. And then the assistant kind of says something indifferent, like adds all these details, you know, lets her down gently. And she's obviously, although you don't know that right away, she's not fooled. It takes a while for her to piece it all together, I think, but she's definitely not fooled. And I'm surprised that theater director takes uh, being rear-ended as well as he does, that he ends up lying and saying that he backed into her. That was interesting, wasn't it? Because he knows he's been a horrible person to her. I mean, geez, to encourage someone to come to Paris, clearly because he wants to sleep with her. 
but to encourage her to come to Paris for a mythical theater part, that's sleazy. I agree. And I like the fact that Claire Denis, you know, had him decide to like not press charges because it would be so easy to make him an even bigger sleazebag. That's like true. the opportunity is just so there. And it's just like, okay, is that what the one of the few decent human things done in this movie for somebody else? I don't think a single one slides into stereotype, slides into, you know, a kind of like, yeah, he's a creep, but he's not 100% a creep. And some people are mean, but there's always something that takes them out of that for a moment. It's impossible to fix any particular stereotype on anybody in the film. And that sounds sort of obvious, but it's when you think about it, that's tricky. So much of our film-going habits are based on immediately identifying who's the good person and who's the villain. Who's got the black hat and who's got the white hat. And so, yeah, it's such a surprise when Camille ends up being – and I can't say it's vicious. It's pretty gentle the way that he's murdering these people and so gentle sometimes that it backfires on him and they aren't really dead. Like the woman who survives, yeah. What does he say to the police? No one likes to suffer? Yeah, that's right. Oh, and he's so nonchalant when they're reading out all of the crimes against him. He's just like, yep, yeah, that was me. I don't remember that one. And the guy's like, no, that was you. What do you all make of um, his partner? Because the partner, like, wants to leave. And it's, you know, even the first murder we see, you know, as soon as Camille starts to actually kill her, he, like, kind of, like, leaves. He doesn't want to be in the room. Yeah, it's unclear, isn't it, what the boyfriend stays because that's what Camille wants to do. And the, when we see him with a, a black eye near the conclusion of the film, is that from Theo? Is that from the blonde guy? Well, you know what? If there's anybody who is kind of a caricature, the blonde guy might be it. He's really creepy. Yeah, the reason why the boyfriend goes along with he obviously adores Camille. Assisting Camille in murdering old women is a pretty... That's a stretch. There's the moment where... Camille's in looks like the waiting room of the hospital and he's there for some sort of appointment but you never find out what the appointment is and then the next time we see Camille he's goes over to his brother's apartment and wants to see him for a moment but his brother's busy you know with his wife and then he like leaves and says I'll tell you later yeah I think the implication is that he has AIDS that's what I was wondering. That's nothing but implication. It's so subtle that you could not notice it. Well, I guess there has to be some reason he's in the hospital, but the doctor could be supplying him with all kinds of who knows what. But I do think the implication is that is that he's he's ill. But again, it's done with so it's just not affirmed in any kind of obvious obvious way. Everything is suggestion. As you say in your book, uh, Judith, he's, you know, Denis refuses to present him, like, I think you call it like either or terms. He's not a monster. He's not a victim. That's so true. I mean, this is probably, it's certainly one of the features of Claire Denis's work. You can't classify people in any kind of absolute way, except that one doctor. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. 
Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, I'm like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment with Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well, because it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not white people it's not i hate white pe- it's dear white people it's how you start a letter the whole climax of the show is a sex scene between malchior and venla and i remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way <laughs> shape or form i'm always thinking about the audience make them feel and make them laugh and make them cry i mean that's as simple as it is for me i had been not wanting to be a part of the film it was clear in the edit that i had to you know really reshape it so the film really told me what it needed to be cinema is an empathy 
machine. And, and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in. I get emotional just talking about it. And the tea is definitely spilled. David, don't no. edit anything of this out. <laughs> no, no, They no. don't want to hear all the charming stories. They want to hear the ugly, gory relationship that Jim and I have. <laughs> We're cutting that part out, by the way. And with guests like John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Vachon, Laverne Cox, Jonathan Groff, Justin Simeon, Jim Fall, Miss Coco Peru, Rachel Mason, Jeffrey Schwartz, H.P. Mendoza, and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind me and I protect She is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. All right, we are back, and we are talking about I Can't Sleep, and hey, we've got the lady that wrote the book on Claire Denise, so let's uh, talk to Judith a little bit more about more of Denise's works. Like you, Colin, I think I had only ever seen Trouble Every Day before watching this one, and uh, man, I was not a big fan of Trouble Every Day. I don't know if it was just the Vincent Gallo presence or what it was, but... I was really hesitant when Judith brought up uh, Claire Denis. I was like, oh, really? The Trouble Every Day director? Trouble Every Day isn't my favorite film, but I suspect that you lo- you saw I Can't Sleep recently, and the colors don't look so great. It looks kind of muddy. You know what was a really interesting experience for me? I saw Beau Travail when it, shortly after it came out. And of course, one of the things that just blows you away is the color and um, the incredible cinematography of them. And um, I did, the Criterion Collection did, um, they did a restoration of both Hawaii, and I did a video essay for the, for the DVD. And when I was working on that, looking, and this was on my computer, even seeing this you know, restored version on my computer compared to the DVD that I had taught, that I had been using all along, that I wrote about to me, Oh my God, it's like a different film. And I please want somebody out there to restore I Can't Sleep. Because I think for so many people, Claire Denis' career, and it took off with Beau Travail, even though Chocolat got some attention, but hardly anybody talks about No Fear, No Die, which came after Chocolat. And I think Chocolat kind of got, I think it's a great film, but I think it kind of got shuffled off into the, first film, autobiographical, you know, not such a big deal in Claire Denis' work. But it really bothers me that I really think No Fear, No Die is a terrific film, too. And then this one, I Can't Sleep. She just has described those three as a trilogy in terms of colonialism and post-colonialism. After Beau Travail kind of cemented her reputation, internationally even it's like these earlier films have just been kind of brushed aside and i really um i really think that's a shame because this film in particular i just it's 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 just miraculous it's such a fabulous film for first three like narrative features my god it's like out of the gate like the visual style the types of stories the sophistication. Um, I know there's a quote from vendors um, where he's saying like, oh yeah, she knew what she, she didn't need to be an assistant director anymore. She was ready to go. And 
with Chocolat, there's uh, so many amazing moments. I love the, it's, it's almost, how would I describe it? The, the, the interaction toward the end between, um, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the main character's name. Charles. The woman? Uh, no, 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 the, 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 the man, the boy, the, the man who helped. Oh, me. um, shit. I think he refers to himself as a boy, but he's a yeah, man. But- um, you know, sort of the, the, the servant character, um, where he finds this white man using the shower that's meant for him. And, you know, this sort of, he's sort of putting himself in the space that's, that's not meant for him. And just like, you know, it winds up, you know, resulting in this like wrestling match on the porch. And it's just like those like three or four minutes, it's just like, the amount of sort of like colonialist sort of like just the complexity and just uh, of what's going on between those people and like all the unspoken weight in history that informs their actions. I'm like, that takes so much longer to unpack than it does to watch it. Yeah. It's, it's the hidden complexity. Well, I was going to say the hidden complexities of colonialism and imperialism, but, the way that she does it is just so um, fabulous, and the connections between—I was saying—it's not cloying. It doesn't beat you over the head. It's—it's it's very subtle. That's what is, and the relationship between the little girl France and the the family servant is just done so so beautifully, and yet it's horrible at the same at the same time. Chocolat, like I, I mean, I think it got some, some attention. I don't think No Fear, No Die has. And I don't think, I'm sure that I Can't Sleep has not been restored and it sure needs it. Um, I mean, I'd love to see what the color really looks like in this. I love that No Fear, No Die almost, noir isn't the right word, but it kind of has this like crime thriller, like, architecture you know like the world of the cockfighting you know the guy has like he has the space that's run down oh we can throw it here nobody's gonna know that we're doing it here like it like has this like this sort of the setup for these crime movies but the way the story is told is just totally different yeah i i really feel like no fear no die is one that could get you know, I, w- I wish that somebody would restore these films and put them out on on DVD. I do think I Can't Sleep came out on DVD, but I'm sure it's no longer available. Um, and I think it's been out of print for a long time. So she would be great for a nice Blu-ray box set. Yeah, that's true. And Criterion, are you are you watching? Please do this. What about U.S. Go Home? I got a copy of that from a friend. And oh, good for you! It's a beautiful, like hour long. Maybe just over an hour, young woman, teenager wants to lose her virginity and wants to go to a party. And there's just so, so much music, so much dancing. And Grégoire Collin, that's his first film with Claire Denis. You know, he'll become star of Nanette and Boni. He plays Boni. He's in both Hawaii, the object of what's his name's jealousy. And yeah, he's terrific. That series. That's another one. I wish that would somebody would put that out on DVD. The series was called All the Boys and Girls of Their Time. Tous les garçons et les filles de leur âge. And so it's like of their time, but also of their, you know, teenage years. And the only requirement was that each filmmaker had to include a party scene. And it had to take place at um, a decisive moment 
in teenage growing up. So this was like the 60s. I love it. There is a Vincent Gallo character at the end, but it almost kind of reminds me of like um, from Puro Le Fou, the, the, like the American, like this sort of stereotype, you know, kind of a jerk. In this one, he keeps trying to offer the brother and sister a Coca-Cola and the brother doesn't want it. The brother's like, oh, I'm a communist. I won't drink Coca-Cola. And he's like, I offer him my last Coca-Cola. He won't take it. He's a communist. Great. <laughs> He's just such a such a caricatured piece of shit, and I'm like, hey, I can good. see Gallo playing a piece of shit pretty well. He he does a very good one. Um, I used to like him a lot. He was in that uh, Arizona Dream movie with uh, Johnny Depp, I think it was, and it was a great film. And his role was fantastic in it. And then just over the years, Gallo wore out his welcome for me. Yeah, I don't even know where he is now. Is he still alive? Maybe. I mean, after you wish cancer upon uh, Roger Ebert and then he gets cancer, I would probably go into hiding. Okay. Well, that was a real conversation. I've watched like most of the 90s movies, but clearly I haven't. I think um, Trouble Every Day and Friday Night are the two most recent. Can you tell me a little bit about like... The more recent ones? Yeah, like I'm, I'm excited. I got a bunch of them piled up here. I am embarrassed to say that I have not seen um, the one that people talk so much about, High Life, and I've heard mixed things about it. After Friday night, there's The Intruder, which I think is actually pretty interesting. It's kind of inspired by Jean-Luc Nancy's little philosophical book called L'Intrude, and the intr- well, intrusion, intruder. It's about a man who he's played by Michel Subor and he goes, he's in search of a heart, a replacement heart. And it takes him to, um, the voyage takes him to, um, Korea, to some, the Titian Islands. And one of the things she does, and this could have been so cornball and it's not, she uses footage from an early film with Michel Subor where he's like on this ship and it really, it fits so beautifully into the intruder that it's like a real flashback on the part of the Michel Sibel character in the film. I, I think it's really interesting. You know, it's kind of like a meditation on the fragility of the human body and aging. And, but the one that I like the best after Friday night, after the intruder White material is pretty interesting. Bastards is pretty interesting. Um, but the one that I like the best is um, 35 Shots of Rum. And that also features Alex Discuss. It's a really beautiful kind of family story. It takes place in Paris, but kind of in the outer regions. Alex Discuss is a father whose daughter is, he's raised his daughter by himself and she's growing up. And she's getting into a relationship with a character played by Grégoire Collin. It's a beautifully done kind of meditation on family connection, but also the need to, to separate. And it, again, is one of the films, one of the many films that the Tindersticks um, wrote the music for. They had, they've had a very close collaboration, although I Can't Sleep is not one of the films that they scored. I have a sort of funny story. It's not that funny. But I was watching 35 Shots of Rum. And suddenly we have four cats 
all four cats while the tender sticks music was playing all four cats got in front of the tv they're mesmerized you know i'd like to say it's claire denis but i i think it might have been the tender sticks more than more than claire denis but i think it's really i think it's really quite something i have you seen let the sunshine in no i don't get it i really don't get it it's um what's her name juliette binoche it's a woman who's literally looking for happiness in her life after um, the breakup of a serious relationship. There's a surprise appearance by somebody famous in the last. I don't want to give it away. But Claire Denis, she's just a brilliant filmmaker. You know, no matter what she does, even if I don't like everything, I did not like Let the Sunshine In. Even if I don't like it all, it's always interesting. You know, everything she does is just really, really interesting. How did y'all decide this movie for, for this episode? I just asked. Uh, I knew that Judith had written about Claire Denis, and I said, okay, what's your favorite film of hers? And without hesitation, she picked this one. And I think it's I, – I, I'm disappointed by – even though there's so much interest in Claire Denis, I mean, you know, she's really a renowned filmmaker now. This is one of her films that hasn't gotten that much attention. I suspect – I mean, it's gotten attention, but – I suspect the subject matter is pretty delicate. I mean, pretty intense. And not that all of her films don't deal with difficult situations. I think there might be some reluctance to do much with this film. I don't know. I have no idea. But this is one film that I really thought would be in the pantheon of Claire Denis' greatest hits. And I just don't think it is. You know, but I think it's a great film. So I thank you, Mike, for asking me to suggest something and then taking me seriously when I suggested this. Well, I didn't know Denise past. You know, like I said, I started with Trouble Every Day and was so turned off by it that I didn't really go back and look at her other stuff. And I, we've covered films on this podcast that she has had involvement with, and I just never realized like surreal estate we talked about when we talked about uh celine and julie go boating there's kind of a little tie between those you know obviously she was first assistant director on wings of desire she's worked on a few vim vendors films she worked on jarmusch films it's just like wow she's been around you know uh, her, one of the first things she's credited for is uh working on sweet movie the makaveya film so there's you tie into uh switchboard operator there oh yeah so. you're right I still need to see Sweet Movie. I saw that. I haven't seen it in years. Is it even available? To, to yeah, that one's a Criterion one as well. They Wait, they did put movie? that out. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, that one and WR, and then they actually did a Machiavelli box set of his earlier stuff. So Switchboard Operator, Man Is Not a Bird, you know, all the way. I can't remember if they did Gorilla Bates at New, and then I think Coca Cola Kid is not owned by the same people. So I don't know if that one's out there that in Montenegro might be left out in the cold. She had a really long apprenticeship and along the way she built close relationships. You know, she made a film about Jacques Rivette, um, great admirer of his, but she worked with all these people. I mean, she really, you know, has risen through the risen through the ranks and people adore her. I mean, well, she's so much to be admired. I just think this woman is incredible. You know, the other film, too, that I don't think gets as much attention as I thought it would is Nanette and Bonnie. I like that film a lot. 
Oh, I love that. That's watched it this morning. The people in, oh, it's just so well done. She just has this alchemy with actors. It just, she creates these moments that are just so, you feel like you're suspended in some kind of special place where you're observing. Yes, but it's more than that. It's like kind of being totally drawn into these amazing um, connections. She's just phenomenal. Another movie about sort of transient characters in some ways. It's, you know, the, in this case, it's a high school girl that sort of runs away from home because she's pregnant and is sort of staying with the brother who's sort of estranged from her. But even the brother's home doesn't seem like a home to him. And he has that like pizza truck where he has a very, where he has this erotic fixation with, um, the baker of Valeria Tedeschi Bruni. Valeria Bruni Tedeschi, I think it is. She's so good in it. And they have this, oh, you got to see, Mike, have you seen Nene I haven't Bruni? seen that one yet either. Okay, you got to see this. They have this conversation. He's like, like crazy about her. He is so wanting to speak with her. And she invites him to sit down and have a drink in a cafe. And she starts talking about all of these chemicals that, connect people and she sticks her arm out and says here smell and the look on his face you know this guy is adolescent crush on her <laughs> so you want me to smell you and then she says guess what i have on nothing that's just my human smell and it's just oh it's so it's kind of sad but it's so adorable and she's kind of a total naive in in all of this it's wonderful, this connection between the two of them. And he's just kind of dumbfounded that the object of his affections is actually not only having a, a conversation with him, but sticking her arm out for him to sniff. <laughs> and it also has some wonderful moments of humor, which even, you know, I Can't Sleep would have the occasional moment. But in, in uh, this one, um, when he goes to the bakery to see her, Claire Denis is sort of like he fr- she frames you know the rolls right in front of the cleavage, and later when he's uh, rolling the pizza dough, he sort of does this. It's like you know orgasm, you know, sort of masturbatory, and he's like beating the dough and exactly, exactly. Oh, it's so good. It's such a good film, and Grégoire Collin is just such a. I think he's an amazing actor. I'm not sure what he's been doing recently. Um, but he was a major figure for her in, so he's in U.S. Go Home, Nanette and Bonnie, Beau Travail. Oh, he's in 35 Shots of Rum. And Claire Denis, she's the only living filmmaker we're talking about this month. Everybody else has passed away, unfortunately. Well, I hope she continues to make films for a long time. She's been really prolific. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, she really does. She's very productive. Yeah, she's supposed to have one coming out in 2022 called The Stars at Noon. So we'll see if that happens. I looked her up on IMDb. There's a film called Fire. Well, so many things have gotten messed up because of COVID. So who knows, you know? All right, let's go ahead and take another break. And we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Veux-tu que je te dise un secret, Séverine? Je t'aime chaque jour davantage. Un jour, il fallait que je vous voie sans votre mari, naturellement. Chez Anaïs, 11 cité Jean de Saumur. 
Mais n'ayez pas peur. Vous êtes ici chez vous. J'ai toute prête à vous aider. Quand voudriez-vous commencer Vous êtes gentille et fraîche. C'est le genre qui plaît ici. Si vous vous appeliez Belle de Jour. Oui, si vous voulez. Vous avez quelqu'un qui vous attend Un petit ami Un petit mari C'est une nouveauté. Je crois qu'elle vous plaira beaucoup. Faut pas la brusquer. C'est la première fois. Il est devenu exigeant. Il vous veut pour lui tout seul. À quoi penses-tu À nous deux. That's right, we'll be back next week to finish up French Month with a look at Louis Bunuel's Belle du Jour. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Colin and Judith. So, Colin, what is happening with you, sir? One of my songs was used as the closing credits for a new podcast, The Shabby Detective, about Columbo. So, uh, wherever the creators, Mike and Chris... Um, Thank you all very much for you know choosing my music for that. That was a huge thrill for me. Well, thank you. I mean, hopefully you're enjoying those fat checks every week, too. I can't buy enough apartments here in New York. It, well, real estate's so cheap right now anyway. It's amazing. Um, other than that, I've been um, marathoning um, W.R. Burnett novels. Um, Starkhouse Press is going to be re-releasing um, High Sierra and Asphalt Jungle. So I wrote an introduction to those two. And fingers crossed, I think, um, closer to Burnett's birthday in April, uh, sort of a larger piece looking at his whole body of work should be in the LA Review of Books. The Day Keen book is nearing the end. The last bit I need to write is the, about all the movies and TV adaptations of his work. So hopefully, um, later this month, once I, uh, cross a few things off my to-do list, I can just dive in and watch those. And Judith, what's been going on with you? Well, uh, you know, I'm retired, a uh, long time retired. I'm aging gracelessly, <laughs> trying to, you know, keep on going. I am writing an essay for a special issue of a journal on Clouseau in the 1950s. Clouseau is one of my favorite directors, Henri-Georges Clouseau. I've written a book on Le Corbeau. Uh, the Raven, and I've written a couple of essays on um, Quai des Ophèvres, which was recently shown on um, TCM. I've written about Les Diaboliques also, and this one is going to focus on Manon, which is a film he made after Quai des Ophèvres in 1949, and he's always interested me because he's such a He's kind of like a bête noire of French cinema. The only period of French cinema where he was really kind of in his element was during the occupation. Um, he's a major figure during the occupation. He was head of screenplays for the fascist, the Nazi-owned company Continental. He was in trouble at the end of the war. And then in the 50s, the things he made in the 50s, while other people were moaning about the tradition of quality and how boring it was, he was making really interesting films. And so... I'm focusing on Manon and how it kind of figures into these transitions from the war to the aftermath. 
And even though people will say that the 1950s was an attempt, well, maybe it was, but people will say people want to forget about everything having to do with the war. It certainly did not go away. So that's what interests me about him, how the, the World War II and its and aftermath and its legacy is still very much there in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. When you're too tense, it's common sense or The more you earn, the less you learn to relax, vous We French, you'll find our more inclined to relax, vous Relax, 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 vous Your doctor bills, they hold for pills to relax, vous You're in your prime, so now's the time to relax, vous the girls pursue those fellas who can relax Relax, 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 relax You're as tight as a drum You're as gay as a tune You better loosen up, chum Your drum is apt to snap and go boom and when you go, they'll take your dough For the taxi relax Get your sneakers and slacks, relax I don't have to try to relax Chum, I'm much too numb to relax We French, you'll find our more inclined to Relax, 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 I'm as loose as a deuce. You're as gay as a tooth. I'm as light as a kite. Better loosen up, chum. Your drum is happy to snap and go boom, boom. And when you go, they'll take your dough. For a taxi. Relax, Get your sneakers and slacks. Relax, Get your sneakers and slacks. Relax, 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 Relax,